Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. How are you today? I know you're probably sick of hearing me say it, but I'm giddy. You're giddy? I'm giddy to be here on the What Difference Does It Make podcast today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great because we're talking to Kristen Hirsch of Throwing Uses. I've been a fan of hers since like the late 80s. She's had quite an extraordinary career. She has a new book out called Seeing Sideways that we're going to talk about. Yes, and by the way, not just throwing music. She's also a solo artist, and she has another band, 50 Foot Wave. She is uh, all about the music. Before we get into our talk with Kristen Hurst, we should mention how proud we are of our YouTube page, Holly, because she's she's putting it together and doing a lot of great work on it. Well, thank you, Dave. Yes, I am. And you'll see snippets of our interview with Kristen Hirsch up on YouTube. We're loading clips up every day. So you get some behind the scenes stuff and some outtakes from the podcast. So just search for What Difference Does It Make podcast. Yeah, I look forward to see whatever's in the, our Kristen Hirsch talk. So uh, <laughs> why don't we get right into it? This is Kristen Hirsch on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Hi. Hey, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thank you. I so appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, no, we're we're thrilled to have you. <laughs> hey, I used to have one of those. I'm pointing. In yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> when I was pregnant in New England, uh, I used to walk my dog on your little treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that would be during the winter when it's too snowy to, uh, yep. yeah. 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 Sometimes I would get, uh, you know, I, I was two people and it, I was unwieldy and then you got the dog on the leash. So I was like, all right, I, I choose baby over dog and I would get <laughs> off carefully and the dog would just oh! <laughs> <laughs> go flying across the room. <laughs> I wonder about that because the dog sometimes and the cat sometimes get on it, you know, when it's, when it's not moving. And I think, what if I turned it on? <laughs> Yeah, because we're both a little bit evil. Well, there's nothing wrong with being a little bit evil. So let's get started. And so you're doing like a tour right now, almost, except from your bedroom. Uh, yeah, I didn't know it was virtual. They didn't mention that. I was, I was all excited, ready to pack. <laughs> oh, and now, but this way I get to have friends from all over the country, you know, join me. And I like the little book event thing. It's real focused and charming. I and mean, this is a completely different thing and not without its charms. Can you see everybody when you're, or are you just, uh, when you're doing the book events? I just see my friend and we talk, mm. you know, and I'm kind of shy. I'm very, very shy, actually. Too shy to, like, respond to emails as you answer my phone or go to the grocery store, things like that. And this is just not hard. I was not looking forward to it because yeah. the book alone is such an exposure and I'm not into that either. I just don't belong here. You know what? I'm going to go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How about my hard <laughs> sell? Huh? Yeah. I got that because you've written, you have, you know, the books and the music, how you're able to, and you say you're extremely shy. You have to put yourself out there, you know, to get, to get any of it out, how you, you know, what you, what you tell yourself or how you, you know, make yourself comfortable. That's a really good way of putting it because I don't want to be here. I want, I'm obsessed with the work and the work can't finish itself without their participation. And as a shy person, that's a difficult thing to admit. I have tried to not, <laughs> and yeah. the songs just pile up. And it's as if I tried to keep a kid in a closet when he wanted to venture out. And yeah, they're not safe there, but they are effective and, you can't remove that quality from something that should be 
on a live thing. If you write a bad song, it's not alive anyway. And so there's no participation. It's just kind of a, an aggressive onslaught of look at me in the tap dance and all that. And without that, I do have to talk myself into the, the work. And I do that by knowing that no one is ever going to hear this song and no one is ever going to read this story. And I have to know it for sure. And then the shock, you know, when it's yeah. published and it's, I'm tasked with this question mark of, is this publishable? Is this something that anyone else needs? And you need to approach the universal and the idiosyncratic in order to get there. Obviously it can't just be care about me because that's, evil <laughs> but i have to be wholly present in my selfhood with all senses engaged or i've got nothing to offer that's actually a very selfless perspective and i can only get there if there's no self-consciousness whatsoever once you start hearing feedback you know with the music and with the books once you start hearing do you, do you you know does it prop you up a little bit more no i i don't have the pump gene <laughs> yeah. i just hope that there is an undercurrent of relatability i suppose and that if the energetic would be what creates that resonance and i know that everything i do is not for everyone in fact, nothing I do is for everyone. It's a very slender strata mm. of output is relatable. And that's okay because I see it as some kind of medicine and search for the people who would need it. And so it, it wouldn't make other people sick. You know, it wouldn't be good, wouldn't be good for them. Did it take a while to get to this process or like to realize this is something I'm proud of and I want other people to hear it? But I also need this uh, this corporate machinery that needs to be done. This this needs to to happen. In other, you know, I don't want to be a tree that you know that old saying: a tree that falls in the forest if it doesn't make a noise. You obviously want this to reach other people, but there is this this process that's needed, and it seems like it's taken you a while to kind of accept, like, okay, I need, it takes a village to get this out. And... <laughs> yeah, but it takes the village, not corporate machinery. That's what took so long. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I knew this. I, I guess we started playing out when we were 14. And I knew that this was not for everyone and it was not for corporate machinery and no one was ever going to think that. And that didn't turn out to be true. So I had to make the same mistakes that many people make that prevents actual work from being exposed because a marketing team is uh, generally going to go for the lowest common denominator insult and that really hurts women really hurts music as a woman in music i had to stand there and say you know what i reject y'all if you won't let me change things in my work and my presentation then i'm i'm leaving and of course 
you know how corporate machinery works. They mm-hmm. say, no, <laughs> we own you. And I had to fight and fight and fight to escape. And then once I finally, I traded my um, first solo record for our freedom. Then I had to face the fact that it is necessary. They have created a landscape in which only the lowest common denominator is heard. What do we do? And every year it's been a matter of troubleshooting, but mostly just the DIY and listener supported have created a different landscape for us where a lack of quality would be frowned upon <laughs> instead <laughs> of the other way around. <laughs> Finally. Let me ask you this, and I, and I realize that they're two separate entities because I, I appreciate, you know, the, your whole story about leaving the, the record label and your reasons for it and, you know, how you've been able to get, you know, your music out there. With touring, you're not, I know you're not dealing with the, you know, with the marketing aspect of a label or anything like that, but do you still find, I mean, it's still corporate, it's still business, it's still money making, I mean, for the promoters, are you comfortable working with them? That's a good question. Yeah. There's always yeah. been a sub music business in the recording industry with amazing radio stations, amazing record labels, amazing record stores, management, photographers, videographers, producers that we exist out here. Mm. This subculture is effective and valid, but we're not going for big money because we aren't willing to dumb down the product. And I believe in a fair exchange given sustainability is really all we're after. And it happens. We went totally DIY with 50 foot wave, which is a cooperative. We maintained relationships with people all over the world so that we could just make a fair wage in order to keep going. And it does work as long as um, your expectations are in line with the effectiveness of your music, which again, is not for everyone, (laughs) but I don't know what is, you know, you look at the dumb stuff and you think, well, that's not for me. So that's not for everyone either. I was going to ask you the last time you did a big festival, we were actually at the Pasadena Daydream Festival with the Cure Uh and all that. And it was, Uh it was quite a fun time. How do you, how do you see yourself fitting into something like that? Like this big, big fest with, you know, it's the Cure, it's, it's 50,000 people. It's, you know, there's a lot, a lot happening there, but do you seem to enjoy playing that festival or, you know? We always enjoy playing. That's what we do. It doesn't register you know, that there are a different number of people because the music doesn't change. And all we offer is focus. I'm literally just like looking down or staring off into space. And I do the same thing regardless of where I am. If I'm in a garage, I do exactly what you saw at the (laughs) festival. (laughs) Can I pivot for a second and ask about your the the kids and music, your kids? Well, I'm sure they appreciate you separately, you know, as as a musician. But what kind of music are they into and how did they get into it? You know, this is a really sad answer. They (laughs) grew up on my bus and in my van and listening to my friend's music. And so we all have the same taste in music. And I feel really guilty about this, but I choose to believe that it's quality that they're looking for. And I do learn you know, about different bands from them, not necessarily new ones, because now the music is in the ether and we mm-hmm. can just grab it. You tend to listen regardless of genre and era. And this is what I had hoped for not just my children, but the the listening populace, which can be very musically illiterate when it's all 
top down and determined mm -hmm. by money, big money, you don't get to hear your own opinions. You're sort of believing that what is marketed to you is what you like and everyone's doing this and that's the bandwagon appeal, which is the lowest common denominator. <laughs> and then there's, well, they're the best people are doing this. <laughs> this is expert culture and snob appeal. And somewhere in there are all humans that have their own opinions, but they haven't been nurtured enough beyond the point where they had a true visceral response to sound, which we're all born with, which is sort of flirted with until we lose touch with what we, we loved when we were organisms. And I just want people to get that back, that beautiful quality of having your heart struck by sound and not because you think other people are doing it or good people are doing it or yeah. dumb people or smart people or anybody but you. <laughs> Something more honest. Well, you were kind of struck, literally, I, I guess, that, and that's how you you found your muse. Or I can can you touch on what how you were in an accident at sixteen, and that's like music started using you as a conduit, I guess. That's what it felt like. I started playing when I was nine. I took about ten years of classical guitar, and I was writing songs when I was nine. So music was already there, and I had a band when I was hit, but. I had a triple concussion as well. My whole body was broken. I should be dead. But in the hospital, I was hearing sounds that sounded like industrial noise. And they would eventually, I realized other people weren't hearing this. And they were gathering themselves into a sonic vocabulary with which I was familiar, meaning rock band. And those became my songs. But they always were. I was just being made aware of this alternate personality that was music. I had never had any memory of writing songs or playing them because I would go into a kind of trance. Mm. And I just thought art is focus. Art is strange. And it's what people say. But now that I've been made aware that this was an alternate personality, I realized all the trauma in my life was going into music so that I could just be this nice lady, everybody's friend and mother and wife. And I was a nice person all the time. And the music was, well, it's not bad. <laughs> it's kind of as celebratory as it felt. It was, a, uh, there was a lot of darkness. Yeah. And it's only in the last five years that I found out what was actually happening and why I, I didn't remember 
music and why I hadn't incorporated it into my personality. And it's a pretty quick treatment and it's a little unsettling to be music now and have myself be the songs and take responsibility for it and not disappear. But it's not that I was a conduit, it's that I was unaware of the part of me that was writing the songs. I'm curious about the treatment you said was, because we couldn't gauge from the book how long the treatment actually was. For me, I had begun treating PTSD from losing my son. And I've spoken with a lot of PTSD veterans, Gulf War veterans who come to my readings. And their experience of EMDR is that it works very, very quickly. But mine was not about me. My trauma was about a child. And it was so deeply embedded and so other than, so beyond selfhood that it took about six months of really wrenching treatments to move that event back in time. And that's when the practitioners started saying, you're dissociating, you dissociate. And I wasn't willing to hear one more person say that I was mentally ill when I have never been unstable in any way. So it it took a while for me to really embrace that function. And it's good. (laughs) Good thing you have a lot more years in front of you. I suppose so. And I'm aware now that it isn't a darkness. It's just a reality. You know, the Dalai Lama says you you embrace reality because it is. Like, <laughs> not for any other reason. You you go out and you march against reality if you need to. You try to change it. In the meantime, let's not hide from it. That's that's a good point. I was hiding, and humans aren't allowed to do that. We are talking to Kristen Hirsch, the author of the book Seeing Sideways, and we're going to take a break, and we will be right back. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our very special guest, Kristen Hirsch. In the start of Seeing Sideways, you have a quote from Bodhi. 
who says all scars are beautiful because you lived. And it seems like that's what yeah. kind of what you've touched on when had something so wise come out of this kid. <laughs> that's what I was asking. We were biking down Constant Street in New Orleans. And I guess my friends and family tend to speak this way anyway. I heard from some of the first people who read the book that the dialogue seemed punched up. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. oh that's sad because that's exactly how we talk. Mm. <laughs> and we were we were talking about hard and we were talking about grounded and with a kid that's they're both the same thing. It's, that's how they see. They see very clearly, but they're also a little too here. They don't have any way to escape here. And he said that. And I actually, I remember the sound of my brakes on my bike. <laughs> it's like, ah! and I took a picture of him when he was saying it, that uh, I still have this little kid, a baseball cat. <laughs> it's like, do you know what you just said? <laughs> Making us want us to, to just keep our kid. Our kids are roughly the same age. Oh. Our kid to, to uh, you know, stop all those moments in time. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that's what a memoir is. As impressionistic as it is, it's a nice series of snapshots. Yeah. So you have that in writing. We just yeah. hope to keep it all up here. It's the one thing they tell you when they, or many things they tell you when you become a parent, right? They say, just try to remember everything. Like, oh, oh I'm sure I'll remember everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I have their help because I have so many. Um, and they were all they didn't have much outside of this sphere mm-hmm. you know they grew up on the bus and in the van and traveling around with us but it's, they have so they have this worldly view that is very <laughs> safe you know they didn't yeah. experience isms and bogeys and they're just now coming to grips with the fact that the world is not the bus and in fact they have all come to me and said mom the world is not the bus. <laughs> like, well, I know. That's why the bus. <laughs> like, why did you think I made the bus happen? That's funny. Because like, what do we do now? I think a lot of families would think the opposite. Like, being on a bus, that is not safe. Like, you're traveling around the country and different uh, scenery. Every every day something different. And you don't know what's out there. And, you know, there's yeah. a lot of unknown. I think you're a little in, uh, in the minority on that. And that true, this was not yeah. something stable. This We were... You know, we were on the move. Yeah, we were not safe physically, but we were safe psychologically. And they have become little soldiers who can work with hunger and urban environments and natural environments and people who all look and speak very differently. And and yet they've only recently come to know things like racism, sexism, Mm -hmm. war, cruelty, so I kept them as safe as I could while giving them the muscles they might need to be human beings. Uh, and now they're coming back and saying, I need different muscles. This place is dark. The fact that mom is there is a safe, is a, you know, just inherently makes them feel safe, I think. That's true. You know, wherever, wherever the location. Yeah. yeah. And I'm a very sunny person, like annoyingly sunny, exhaustingly <laughs> sunny, depending on who you're talking to. <laughs> But it was very light and fun coming from me. Like everything, you know, the mom spin. I'm sure you do it too. It's like, yay, this, whatever the hell it is. <laughs> right. And now there's nobody doing that. There's nobody saying, yay, this. They're just going, what the hell is it? 
Are they, are they still close to you? I mean, physically close to you? No, they're all over the place. I have a chef in Manhattan and a baker in New Orleans, an animator. He was in LA. Now he's cleaning his karma, his Disney karma. I would imagine that's Wyatt. Wyatt is the animator? Yes, yes, Of course. He's in New England at a health food store. He's still animating, but he did what I did, leaving corporate and trying to get clean from it. And then I have a little Bodhi surfer who's a... Uh, out here shaping boards and surfing and they're all spread out and they're all sort of sober about that. They were a pile of puppies. <laughs> they don't know what to think about reality. <laughs> but if they're spread out, they're more, they're doing it. So they, they, they got it. a taste of it all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell them you said so. Thanks. Mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's the mom. Exactly. You say it's a sunny <laughs> You, you keep everything like the Partridge family, but but you read this book and it all of a sudden you're like, you know, like it's the start of it. Like, what's happening? Wait a second. Is she, were you drowning? You know, like, is she drowning yeah. or what's, and, you know, there was a lot of internal turmoil with, you know, based on this, this book and, and kind of subconscious. I don't know if, you know, like sunny on the outside and then inside there's just this, this, yeah. you know, so much going on. It starts in a very dark place there's no way anyone could be sunny through that and it's an odd way to begin a book but that's where I had to start enough people had asked me for the sequel to Rat Girl that I had just said no you know you don't want to go there it's that book ends in triumphant fashion let's keep your hope where it is and I'll (laughs) keep mine where it is and we're not going to go there together it is a kind of cruelty to take somebody there this book wasn't my idea. It was my publishers, and they knew that as soon as I got addicted to the time tripping process, that I put in my years, and it was about five or six years of just absolute obsession, just getting up at two or three in the morning and time tripping until dawn. Is that when you do your best work? Like girl? It is. Yeah. You don't when you don't know if it's night or day, and you can't hear anything. You you can remember. Uh, in a way that's akin to self-hypnosis, the textures, the colors, the sounds of people's voices. And I did check in with journalists, bandmates, and children and say, like, is this, did it happen the way I am remembering? And I don't know, maybe they're all being polite, but they say, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the result is as honest as I can be. And you hope that, you know, honesty and truth are very different things. Truth is a clarity that we aren't always afforded as humans we're in the mess and I was certainly in the mess when I was 20 whatever when this book begins that's touching you just don't want to share too much pain with people you don't like to hurt people and if you do then you know if you're down in a pit together you should be fashioning some kind of ladder out of the pit some kind of light and the only thing I could really offer them was this stream of consciousness dream that when you're straddling a reality that's too harsh, there's always a concurrent dream. And that dream gets you to the next harsh, which is the, the second chapter is all the harshness of the, the music business, the corporate music business. And that's a degradation that I find even more difficult to suffer through because there's a dryness, a dead, you know, zombification there. 
it's only when the book wakes up in New Orleans that I think mm-hmm. the story is saved and you feel safe writing it out, which is how I live. It's like, just don't forget New Orleans, carry that richness and know that darkness has its place. And, you know, even if you don't live through it, who are you? I was going to ask, I don't know if you're a Grateful Dead fan, but this kind of felt like a, uh, like a jam, like every chapter was like, you know, we're going to, we're going to jam, you know, we might go off, we might go off in a little direction over here, but you know, and then we'll bring you back, but then we're going to jam a little bit and here's a little stream of consciousness thought. And so that's kind of what it felt like in a way. (laughs) Yeah. It's just a big jam session. Yeah. Well, the, the voices of the children, informed the style of the writing in rat girl there were different voices the the chapters were divided according to seasons pretty similar to the children uh and the first was the first voice was very young and then it gets pretty uh shattered and then drugged and then pregnant and those are very very different voices and in this case these are my children's voices and dooney rider Wyatt and Bodhi have different effects in different ways. And of course you don't know them. (laughs) So it was just for me, it was like a get psyched way to throw myself into each passing year. By the time you get to Bodhi, who I'm not going to say ADD about him, but he's just a scattershot human being. His focus (laughs) is water essentially, but it's just bam, 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 bam. And it's exactly what, the book and the storyline, which is obviously a lifeline needed just Mm -hmm. to Jackson Pollock out at the end. And it's not unlike playing a lead. Like if I play noise leads and I, I make sure that they are never chops, then I'm never going to memorize them. I have to be thinking on my feet and responding and you have to hear like hundreds of notes going by so fast and knowing which are atonal. You don't want it to sound like a beer commercial, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you can't just play anything. It it has to be right. And Bodhi's voice and presence taught me how right scattershot can be just the way a lead does. I love that. Very good comparison. I do. It was told. I I enjoyed the way it was told, but I have to, I, I, I'll take issue with the, your thing. It can't be, you know, all dark and, you know, down and dreary. People want to hear the story, and it and and if that feels genuine to be to the reader, then right. that's what it. I mean, I, I you, it's not like at the end you review a book and say it was too dark for me. I mean, this is your story. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is a good point. And in <laughs> fact, we just had this conversation over pancakes a minute ago <laughs> because it's always been Wyatt's assertion that we need the turquoise, meaning we need the A minor, we need the sadness. <laughs> uh, don't shy away from what is most beautiful and looking for what is most comfortable. And that's it's, it's certainly an old idea that we haven't all incorporated into our 
work or into our lives. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a, a mothering sense of kindness to the reader. I Like if I didn't want to go there and I had to, why, why put them there? And the only answer, as you say, is to really go. You go all the way through and suddenly you are devoid of the capacity to judge. It's no longer comfort or discomfort. It's just experience you're completely engaged in the experience and the first few peer reviews of the book said we have no idea what's going on yeah (laughs) i was like right (laughs) yeah Yeah. but we have no idea what's going on it's like yeah that (laughs) yeah it worked that's genuine i heard in a previous discussion you were talking with john doe and john doe called uh, the first chapter wonderfully mysterious which is Pretty much what it felt like. So it works. Thing is, John is just such a a good arbiter of experience. (laughs) That way, he is. He will allow anything except what shouldn't be, and he's got good taste in that regard. So, if I can put John through that and know that he's going to come through and say that it's just mystery, then uh, okay. (laughs) very well said i would like that 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 someone to say that about me that you said that he is an arbiter a very good arbiter of what should be yeah Yeah. (laughs) the compliment who would send that to him yeah well he's funny i'm so you know doormat nice okay Mm -hmm. let's see how that goes i'm just positive about everything and he's very accepting and then he'll just like the door just slams he's like that's not gonna happen (laughs) (laughs) like I have a lot to learn from those muscles. <laughs> Everyone needs someone who will call them out. That's true. Yeah. 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 You had a few moments like that in the book, like like when you were pregnant and doing this video that, it, you know, it seemed like it was kind of ridiculous what they were making you do. And you were kind of going through the motions like, all right, I'm I'm just going to do this or, you know. Um, yeah. It, it, it was worse than that. It was yeah. fury. It was just humiliation, degradation and fury that any, everything I believed was just being thrown to the garbage. It's like, you're going to play stupid music. This is going to be sexist. It's just like everything you are against is happening and we're going to destroy you in the process. And all I had done was want to play music that didn't lie, that didn't flirt, did not insult. It was not marketing fodder. And they hate you when you do that. They will destroy you. Then we let it happen. And that was the best thing that ever happened to us. It's like, yeah. okay. You're going to destroy me, and this is still going to be, quote, one of your most popular songs. And yet my real band, when we became a trio, it was all this great world of, you do not own what you think you own. (laughs) Screw you. They wouldn't send our records to record stores. They took our song, Bright Yellow Gun, off the radio (laughs) and said, we're not working throwing muses. We put our money behind another band. And mm. we just thought, this is proof. you know. And, and it happened again with 50 Foot Wave years later. We did, um, you know, we wouldn't charge for music. We wanted to see what happened if you took the dollar sign mm-hmm. out of it. And this is, <laughs> we did 2 million downloads of a record and Billboard freaked out. They're calling me mad, you know, it's like, we need catalog numbers and who the hell are you? And all <laughs> I was like, wow care like why do you care and then they found out that we didn't charge and they said oh never mind this doesn't concern us it's like i knew it (laughs) it's bad enough to count units sold but you're just counting money 
And they're like, yeah, yeah, we count money. <laughs> what year was this? Was this around the time of In Rainbows? I know, you know, Radiohead famously did like a name your own price type situation. 50 uh, Wave actually did it first. Yeah. They were the first yeah. to do that. And so it, it was, I guess, I don't know, a few years before that. Yeah, but, well, oh, it was great to find yeah. out. <laughs> it's like, you know, your world is going to fall. <laughs> and someone is going to take the word music away from you because this is not what you sell. And it's true. They sell product. And it's a kind of Broadway actor, model, dancer, singer that mm. yeah, they can dress up as artists to do whatever they want. Say they call themselves musicians, but it's not what they do. And it's just Kleenex and Wonder Bread. And it just kind of fades into the background. And power is not to be found when you're counting that crap. When you're looking for people who want attention rather than wanting to be selfless, there's nothing giving there. It's all taking. So it's, it is playing out the way it was always going to. I guess that was helpful when 50 foot wave hit, hit the road where there you, you probably got a lot of new fans that uh, wanted to, wanted to listen to your music. Actually, now that I say fans, you, in the book, you also talk about the difference between fans and listeners. Which which do you prefer? <laughs> <laughs> well, we we had listeners until we signed with you know the, the corporate reality is very it's insidious and damaging and the first symptom of that damage I noticed was that we no longer had listeners we just had these fans it, it, it was an odd inflammatory response that we had engendered in human beings that weren't acting like human beings. They wanted us on a pedestal so they could knock us off. And they had no interest in music. They wanted to hear like whatever dumb songs on the radio and then leave and, but they're crazy. They're like, they seem obsessed with you, but you know that it has nothing to do with you. It's gonna be somebody else next month. This is why I don't wanna play that games. I wanted to work. I never wanted to be a pop star. Never wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be in the corner. They say, you're gonna be in right now and out next year and Good luck. <laughs> you know, mm. Fashion, essentially, by yeah. definition, ephemeral, not timeless. And we were going for the timeless. So the listener also goes for the timeless. And they're not going to attribute that to you, obviously. If you do something good, you're not responsible for it. So they don't really want autographs and stuff like that. But they do support us financially. They pay our studio costs. And this allows us to circumvent the industry really as a whole. And I'm not rigid about it now. I work with a record company so that I don't have to earmark funds for promotion, distribution, and production. And it's another way of working stuff out. And pandemic is another year where we had to go like, okay, what now? <laughs> You're touching on the strange angels who help you out. Yeah. Can you uh, tell us about the strange angels? <laughs> yeah, when it collapsed, and everything should collapse. It is what it is. <laughs> Entropy mm. is real. <laughs> Our bus was a great solution for us all to like, live on a bus and never stop working and traveling. And then the bus, you know, there was a fiery crash on a mountainside. And um, that was our home. It was our livelihood. It was everything my children had known. When that crash happened, you know, there was a pickle jar full of goldfish in the sink. And one of the fish died. And my little boy, Wyatt, mm. said that he wanted to, you know, help the fish and I thought he knew what death was I, I kind of put the hippie talk on hold you know we're gonna do this 
after you focused and sent good energy to this little fish spirit. <laughs> and I sort of forgot, you know, there's all stuff going on. And I left Wyatt staring at a dead fish for hours. And I, I came back and said, okay, now we're going to have the talk about saying goodbye. It's good practice, the goldfish, you know, it's perfect. And for when you start to lose people, you will have done this, you know, and then the fish just jumps up in the air and starts swimming around. <laughs> and Wyatt says, oh, good. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> we we pulled all our money. We I told my bandmates, I'll fly you home, you know, you you're off the hook here. This is my failure. You cannot play good music. My bad. I thought you could. You cannot not whore yourself out, blah blah blah. And they said, No way. We're pulling our money. We're all gonna finish this tour. So by the time we got to the next club all these people that started writing saying, we heard about your bus crash and we want to give you studio time. We want, want you to stay with us. We're going to give you guitars, amps, we play my club. What can we do so that you don't stop playing music? I'm crying right now just talking mm-hmm. about it. But that was the strange angels. That became how my family continued, how my music continued, how I continued. I don't, I don't know what I would have done. I was ready to just, you know, mm-hmm drive off the mountainside that day, but Mm -hmm. they're still doing it. I can still make records for three recording entities because some people want to hear it. unimaginable to know that people have that you've struck a chord with people to want to support you to that great length yes and and it has struck the chord within me to do the same we help the homeless every day here my son and i go out and it's you know we live in southern california it's like 25 percent of the nation's homeless or something and it became just a a lifestyle and then i realized that there are too many tendrils of giving that I have ignored. It, mm-hmm. it isn't just the hungry, but also these strange angels who would write and say, well, I just lost my job, but it's gonna be a few months. And uh, so we made this rule, only if you can afford it. And for real, like we'll find a way to get you your soundtrack. If you can't pay for it, it will always be free. And uh, they've come to me and said, well, I, I'm starting a new business. And I was like, what, what is it? <laughs> you know, and it's um, CSA, you know, and so we get farm vegetables for the family. And it's become this network of yeah. not just giving, but receiving. Even the homeless, they tell us these stories that I would, I would never have known what humanity was here. This is like hunter-gatherer society in an urban environment. There's just so many different ways to give. Sometimes all they're asking for is eye contact. When I broke my leg, they wouldn't take money anymore. It's like, dude. (laughs) (laughs) 
I got 20 bucks in my truck. I'm yeah. going to you right now. My leg's going to heal. Yeah. They're like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> not till you're not on crutches anymore. It teaches, I mean, the kids, it's like modeling behavior for your kids. So you're, you're telling them, you know, I mean, you're, you're showing them and that's important. I mean, I know it's self-satisfying also, but yeah, that's, that's how it kids... was nice to see. I was driving my son, Bo, and a friend to a surfing competition and we had to drive all night to get there. I didn't realize that <laughs> I didn't know where I was going. I was just like, I five north to <laughs> let me know when we get there. I think we went to LA just to grab sandwiches. And when I parked, the kids just ran out of the truck. I didn't know where they went. And it was because they had some cash in their pockets and they saw a homeless woman and they were racing to her just happily emptying their pockets and she's just going, <laughs> and I realized it's because that's what we do. Yeah. Instead of hiding, you know, averting their gaze, they were running up to her like she was a strawberry bush. Here's our opportunity. I think your job is done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wrote the book, the strawberry bush is done. Everything's yeah. done. But yeah, you're still learning from your kids. Well, you also said in the book, you had a, the topic of quietness and you said that why it taught you quiet. I mean, and there was a point where there was silence. Like in this book, you, you go in length about that and- what was yeah, that? Wyatt was born quiet. He didn't cry. Then we moved to the desert when he was a newborn, I guess. And um, it was silent there, as you know, it's the desert. Hmm. But so was I. I had never been silent before. I had always heard music. And now I heard this odd, like, harmonica sound and the whispering pines. And the desert is also loud. <laughs> it's like coyotes. <laughs> would sit in a semicircle in the driveway and just wait until midnight and all scream at once. Just like a horse noise, you know, we say, oh, they whinny and neigh. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Horses rumble like an earthquake. Yeah. I know, because I record in a horse studio. <laughs> it's on all my recordings. The coyotes yodeling is like a shrieking. And when they all do it at once, you know, it just became a different definition of sound. The owls, the roadrunners, the the sounds out there were not the music with which I was familiar. And yet it was still all music. And I called it quiet because it was coming from the outside for the first time. Not chaos inside. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there's so many different parts. There's quietness, there's loudness. I mean, you described your family as uh, as a circus, a, it's a cult. You know, so there's a lot of animals, apparently. There was sunshine, the snake, and, you know, like there, there was always, it seemed like there was always activity going on, it seems like. The animals. Yeah, I was surprised when that thematic element showed itself. The animals that we needed to learn from they kind of start small in New Mexico with crows and snakes. And, you know, by the end, you're like overwhelmed with ostriches and lions and mm. <laughs> chimps and uh, roadrunners. And then because of Bodhi, we had such a menagerie. We just got used to it. <laughs> just animals just coming in. And some, some of them would just walk in or fly in and just stay. But for the most part, it was Bodhi rescuing things. And yeah, we had about 80 snakes, not not at once. Yeah. <laughs> but we had um, three alligators and dwarf swamp rabbits and three uh, rescued mallard ducklings. And they would all swim together. 
nobody bothering each other. We'd swim with them. And so, wait, where where was this? Yeah, <laughs> because this was not on the bus. <laughs> this is New Orleans. Yeah, but we moved around far more than it even looks like in the book, and also in New England. But it was in New Orleans that we had this little body of water that we would all swim in with the alligators and the rabbits and the ducks. And swamp rabbits are very into swimming, and alligators are too, obviously. But <laughs> The uh, the ducks hated the water. We were trying to train them because they didn't have duck mothers swim and stuff, and they would scream. So, <laughs> and we we tried to get them to imitate the rabbits and the alligators, and they just wanted to sit on our heads screaming until we got them out of the water. <laughs> A friend of mine said, "You're sure they're ducks." <laughs> Who knew that about ducks? Yeah, right. Ducks go in water. Ducks are quirky people. I, I have never known a non-quirky duck. And <laughs> we've had lots since then. They're all goofy. <laughs> but most of them do like water. Yeah, I think we messed those ones up. And I'm sorry. No need to apologize. <laughs> no, talk to in case you run into them. <laughs> they fledged and everything, but they're not good with water. So of all the places that you've lived, do you have a favorite or is it always just where you are? That would be a good attitude. I don't really have that attitude. Yeah. <laughs> ah, okay. I think I'm always into the next place. I've probably spent more time in New Orleans and Rhode Island than anywhere else. And uh, they, they have a different kind of richness. Rhode Island has that Irish drama, mm-hmm. the fog on the beach kind of drama and apples apples are important (laughs) and then new orleans has a richness that comes from its redemption through sin mythology that is so familial and so forgiving and so unself-conscious you know the, the human experience we're the species that embraces illusion and it's so it's so sad and so sweet and you can't just be the Zen master by the babbling brook always. You gotta admit that we're here and we got the goddamn fruit loops going on. We we got the heartbreak. We <laughs> we're in the mess. And New Orleans will acknowledge that and say, because they've done drama, they don't do melodrama. Mm-hmm. They'll say, Whatever gets you through the night, because you are you are life. So you're also gin sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> One of your sons, you mentioned, he's a, a chef in Manhattan. That's like New York is a whole different beast uh, from where you've lived in the past. I mean, what what is your opinion of of New York City and and how's your son adjusted is, to yeah. to living in the big 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 time city? I did New York for a while early on, like at the beginning of the book. There's some New York, but I don't know. I keep trying to talk him out of it, saying like. You, <laughs> yeah. You are a toddler at the beach, <laughs> and I'm right about that. <laughs> He's one of the people who makes the food that Martha Stewart cooks. You know, <laughs> his food is on her magazines and on her TV shows. And stuff. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's wow. in it. The only thing he wouldn't do is uh, he was working at a, a high-end sushi place and in the kitchen, and he heard himself do the kitchen yell, as he put it. And this is my oldest son, Dooney, and, and Dooney just said, I, I won't be that person. I won't treat anyone that way. And so he, he, he quit. Wow. <laughs> and, yeah, so he, he's one of the quiet people. I think he's becoming the toddler at the beach again. I'm, I'm still working on that, but I'm, I'm close. <laughs> Always the mother, right? You got, you always got, yeah. you're, you're always, te- you always got to teach they, these kids. They never. They call my aggressive mothering 
um, Mothra. They just refer to me as Mothra <laughs> as if I was like so offended. So Mother's Day is Mothra's Day. And whenever huh. I'm being a little too momming, I'll get a little picture of Mothra as a text. <laughs> That's very good. So you know to back off. That's their, that's. I do not back off. No, I'm into the monster. <laughs> I'm all about swimming. Embrace. Yeah, you should. Yes. You're safe, right? So I'm doing something mm-hmm. right. <laughs> Didn't you? Okay. So you said like Wyatt's first word is moon and it wasn't, you don't think he was saying mom? <laughs> <laughs> no, he was pointing at the moon. You knew for sure he was saying moon. Because okay. you are his moon. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's true. <laughs> well, we were in the desert. There were only like four things. Moon was one of them. <laughs> he was this little baby in diapers and he pointed straight up at it and said, moon. And then Bodhi did the same thing many years later. Is there some like a kinship between them? I mean, I'm sure hopefully they all have it. Your first yeah. word was the same. Yeah, the two babies are very close. Mm-hmm. And then the two that had to grow up quicker are also very close. But as a group... Well, they're mostly just cooking. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what made them all so chefy, but you brought in all the elements. That's, that's yeah. just just natural, I think. Yeah. That's... I think they were hungry. Yeah, <laughs> they grew up on a bus. Yeah. Really that could be. But lucky you, regardless. It's true. Yeah, and Mothra's not allowed near the kitchen when the boys are here. Nice. <laughs> Envious. <laughs> <laughs> I try. All right. Well, before we say goodbye, I also wanted to mention the your band, Throwing Muses, managed to put out a record last year. <laughs> yeah. Sun Racket. So, this, it, yeah, this was, you made like a visual album. Every, it's all on YouTube. Everyone has, every song has a, like a visual cue to it. It's, it's really wonderful. I really love oh, it. Thank you. Yeah, I love yeah. that record. I, I got really into, well, the nice word for it is hypnotic. I just wanted these music songs to just roll in distortion, just just keep rolling, just go down some long, slow hill. And so that's that's the record we made, and nobody told us not to. You know, we're so old, nobody's going to tell us what to do or what not to do anymore. actually in the book it was kind of cool that like you had lyrics containing stanzas from your whole music catalog that helped push your story and allowed us to dissect exactly what go- what was going on in your life yes yes <laughs> and uh, you know my drummer as he puts it when people find out that all your songs are literally true you are in so much trouble <laughs> you're not a poet <laughs> you're just a reporter <laughs> Well, you you just r- outed yourself. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you write what you know. Have titles, but the people don't have names. You know, and I didn't, I'm not sure I used that as a device, really. I just found it uncomfortably specific if I use names other than the children's. And it did serve that the fluid bandmate problem, which is that the drummer is two people. 
the bass player is two people. And uh, but they play the same role in my life. Right. Yeah. Given like where they are and that the drummer is the foundation and the bass player is between you and we all live together. You know, there is no closer family than these bands. But it's also kind of like with nicknames, when you give somebody a nickname. Yes. You just stick with the nickname. So in Because that's their essence. And I have a problem with, I don't know if it's Western culture or the entertainment industry, but this concept of big names, they actually use that term as if one person Mm -hmm. could be more important than another person. (laughs) But status is so insidious that you would use that to determine a human's value. So this valuation, I so dislike in the entertainment industry where it's particularly cartoonish that even Conan O'Brien doesn't have a name in my mind. He just has a TV show for some reason. All right. I have to ask, because I've seen, I see your tattoo. I always like to ask people about their tattoos and especially with you. I mean, usually there's something memorable about. What is that? What is the kids initials? B W R D. Starts with the baby and ends with the big one, oh. the big baby. That's really that's that's nice. Meaningful. We 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 like our tattoos to have meaning. Yeah, the, uh, Bodie and I went together to the tattoo parlor and the Irish Channel in New Orleans as I was leaving for Australia, and he was going to have to be alone. And he was he was kind of he wasn't young young, but he was little. <laughs> well, young enough for me to be really distraught. He will always be young, too young. Yes. <laughs> you need prayer beads, so this will be your prayer beads. Just, I want to make oh, sure you come oh. home. And our names and our identities will bring you home. You'll feel safe even when you're across the world. And that's kind of been how they were raised anyway. I didn't know it sunk in, but it's a sensibility. Mm. It's an orientation. It's, it's, of course you're home across the world. Because you're not home anywhere. <laughs> you just are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you need prayer bees to, to wake you up to that, then the tattoos work. That's really lovely. And lovely that it came from him, that he was the, the parent. Yes. <laughs> this case. Well, sadly, yeah. there are about 11 that I didn't make it beyond age 11. And that they're going to have to grow <laughs> themselves and me. Uh, that age where they start holding doors for you and carrying groceries and amps and <laughs> guitars is when they go, oh, mom never really figured this out. It's like, but I'm still there baking them cookies and being nice to them. This book, Seeing Sideways, was amazing. It was quite a journey. I felt like you took me all, all over the place. Uh, <laughs> um, and, I so appreciate you all reading. I haven't met many people who read it yet because it just came out. It felt like like you wrote four separate songs or something, you know, it's oh, like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's just exactly like, yeah, this songs wrote themselves. Yeah. This was like a record album in a way. And so, uh, oh, you know, it, it was oh, great. great. Very well, enjoyable. The publisher pitched it to me. He said, if I time it right, you'll be facing empty nest when it's published. And I just <laughs> said, they're like, oh, that's awful. Right. Like, an extra emotion. Right. Yes. <laughs> and he just waited and said, you can do it. I'm like, I know I can, but I don't want to. That's just wrong. And uh, he was right. It was nice to have the opportunity to create a storyline out of something that is like 30 years long. I-, I was allowed to edit out all the boring stuff, for one. But you don't often do that to your own life. You look at storylines in other people's lives or in movies and stuff, but your own life is just that big lump of clay with everything in it. But once you start chipping away at the boring stuff, you get this 
storyline that was it was actually really nice to identify mm. as I was having to let it go. Yeah, you don't realize you're living this through storyline as it as you're creating yeah. with like foreshadowing and yeah. morals and <laughs> everything Disney might pitch to us. Our lives are doing. Thank you so yeah, much for doing this. this was, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank and again, you. the book is wonderful. It's uh, Seeing Sideways. It's available everywhere. Go to an independent bookstore and get it. Thank you. We're so grateful to have you. So. Yes, we were uh, very you thankful. You are awesome. I'm so glad you do what you do. It's really important. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Same with you, Kristen. <laughs> I mean, come on. I'll yeah. see you soon. Yes, for sure. Can't wait Definitely. to see you a uh, guitar strapped to you and uh, we can see. That would be a relief. <laughs> yeah, right? So what a treat that was, Holly. What a joy. This is someone we've been familiar with for over 30 years now. And I really didn't know too much about her. This was the first book of hers that I've read, Seeing Sideways. And what a journey she takes you on. Even though we are vastly different, you know, upbringings, you know, have lived different lives, I really did. Can I felt like I connected with her as a as a mother. She's a Mothra. I love that. that, that <laughs> the way her kids refer to her. Yeah, really great. Anyway, there's a lot going on in, in Kristen's life, and there's a lot going on in our life. The What Difference Does It Make podcast. Tell us about the YouTube page, Holly. <laughs> Check out our YouTube channel. We are uploading clips from past shows daily, outtakes from shows, stuff that you haven't heard before check it out thanks to our listeners for tuning in new episodes every friday so uh please subscribe so you don't miss one of our, our thrilling uh, exciting entertaining and fun episodes thank you to, for sticking with us and yes. for those who are about to stick with us yes welcome to it until next week this is dave this is holly check you later over and out it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.